Well, this is another week in the Gospel of Mark that uh, I'm just thrilled to preach this passage uh, about amputations and eye gouging and drowning. It's just, I'm excited. So, uh, I'm Joe Davis. I'm the pastor here at Grace Life. We're continuing with our series on the Gospel of Mark. By the way, if you're tuning in, the first time, if you're here the first time at Grace Life, we don't really do any topical sermon series. We just go chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse, and we're going through Mark. This is week number 43 in the Gospel of Mark. I've entitled this message, The Cost of Halfway. So, let's just uh, say that the title for today's sermon is ironic, to say the least, because when we follow Jesus halfway, It's really our attempt to manage what we perceive is the cost of really being all in with Jesus. Following Jesus halfway is basically saying there are certain things about following Jesus that are going to cost me a bit too much. So I'm going to cordon off that section of following Jesus. There's something involved with my kingdom work that I have determined that is irrational. It is illogical and it is not worth the payment. And what we do as a result of that, if we're honest, is all of us are constantly looking and seeking for the most efficient path of least resistance when it comes to serving Jesus, often mixing the earthly kingdom with the heavenly one. And it shows up in every area of our life, our relationships, what we watch, where we go, how we spend our money. And let's face it, many things battle for our passions. Some good, some sinful. And as a result, we often make very irrational, illogical choices. We choose things over Jesus that we have determined at that moment are more valuable. And as a result, we become what the scripture calls double-minded. We aren't all in. Each day for a Christian, especially in America, it's like waking up to an auction where we bid on how much we are willing to pay to follow Jesus full tilt. What we don't realize is the cost of not being all in is far more expensive than the cost of being all in. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples in all of chapter 9. So before I read the passage, I want you to know there are many translations that omit verses 44 and 46 because they were inserted by scribes and translators later because they really felt like they wanted to emphasize what Jesus was saying. Not a good idea to do most of the time. So we're going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV, and they leave out verses 44 and 46 correctly in my opinion. So let's start with chapter 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Well, that's pleasant. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Oh, there you go. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. 
where the worm die, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So these are definitely, if we look at the history part of this passage, these are some harsh, harsh metaphors. I mean, it's almost like you could make it like a rap song, right? Now, just remember, even after the transfiguration, which we just preached on a few weeks ago, where Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus, the healing of the demon-possessed boy a couple weeks ago, all the teaching, the private teaching with the disciples, they still, the disciples, just cannot let go of the kingdom of this world. They're trying to figure out, constantly calculating ways to keep hold of their old view of the kingdom and somehow mix it with this new one that Jesus is talking about. Remember, they're asking, who's going to be first in your kingdom? And Jesus is trying everything he can to pry the disciples away from those affections because time is short. They're still not getting it. Jesus is starting to head towards Jerusalem, toward the cross, toward his death, and he knows that he has got to drive this message home because they're still not able to let go of the old thoughts, the old ideas. And so he uses, he's starting to ramp up the rhetoric, if you will, the volume, and the, and the tone of his language is getting stronger and stronger because there's, there's a level of desperation that is seeking in. And it's Jesus showing his humanity, frankly. <clears throat> so he uses graphic metaphors. Now, don't be offended by these graphic metaphors because if you're honest, you'll realize we use them all the time. Stabbed in the back, slapped upside the head, blown away, ripped my heart out, right? So it's not, don't get mad at Jesus because he said, cut your hand off. Y'all do this stuff all the time. Why do we do that? We do it to express intensity, emotion, importance. We are trying to explain the experience of the emotions that we are feeling. The key to understanding this very difficult graphic passage is understanding the historical context of each one of the graphic metaphors Jesus uses. First one I want to look at is kids and millstones. So I taught you last week that children were the weakest, most vulnerable members of society at the time, right? People that were easily manipulated, taken advantage of for personal gain or pleasure. Children were very vulnerable. Well, here, Jesus is not talking just about children. He's actually talking about disciples, Christians, those who are trying to follow Jesus. And he says, it is better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown in the ocean than to mislead someone. So what is a millstone? There's something used to crush grain. You see how big it is, right? They'd use a donkey to go around in a circle to crush the grain. And I've given you a picture. I added the shark just for effect, right? <laughs> so you're thrown in the ocean, the millstone's raining, and the shark's coming to get you too. You're not getting out of that one. <laughs> MacGyver's not going to help you. <clears throat> these are tons and tons, these rocks. It's a massive stone. And he says, you're better off wearing one of these in the ocean than to mislead weak brothers and sisters in Christ into sin. I mean, drowning is frightening enough. Drowning this way would be just 
Well, I just shudder to think about it. It's horrifying. <clears throat> I want to talk now about <clears throat> Roman amputation. <clears throat> Why was amputation used? So Jesus prescribes, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> what seems to be a very so severe solution for a sinful body part, using hands and eyes as an example in the feet. And uh, he uses punitive legal amputation, <clears throat> excuse me, which was common during the Roman Empire, legal punishment for a crime. And if someone saw you walking down the street without a hand, they would just know, oh, well, there goes a thief. It's public exposure of who you are. There's no pretense, no facade. You lost a hand. You're a thief. You lost a foot. You were running from the law. You lost your eye. You did something. I don't know what you would lose an eye for. But Roman amputation was very common. <clears throat> and when you saw somebody that had a body part amputated, there were only two reasons, medical or legal. We don't see much legal amputation these days, maybe in some countries, but not here. <clears throat> there, it was a very public branding. <clears throat> and then he says a lot, a lot about hell, hell and fire. He mentions, Jesus does, the concept of hell 11 times in the New Testament. James mentions it in chapter 3, verse 6. <clears throat> we'll look at that later, but the word for hell <clears throat> is this word, Gaiana. It means a valley of Hinnom. It's an actual place outside Jerusalem. It's figuratively used, this valley of Hinnom, as a name for eternal punishment. A little bit of history of this term, this, this term used for hell. Uh, evil kings, back when, when Israel was struggling and they were, they were going away from God, evil kings, <coughs> excuse me, Ahaz and Manasseh, had offered human sacrifices there. They were trying to please the God of Molech. They would offer babies up for live sacrifice, the prophets of God for Baal. <clears throat> Human sacrifices. They were doing this because they were completing their transition from worshiping Jehovah to worshiping false god, paganism. This was happening during the time of Elijah. And Jeremiah later renamed it the Valley of Slaughter. Therefore, behold... Days coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no, no more longer be called Topeth or the valley, of, the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. <clears throat> Later on, the righteous king Josiah came into power and he did away with all that evil Baal worship and worship of Molech and he turned it into a dump. <clears throat> Not the kind of dump you think of today. This was a dump full of rotten food, sewage, anything that rots. And there was a fire burning constantly to try to keep the waste down. This is, without a doubt, <clears throat> any real estate agents, this is the worst real estate in Israel. <clears throat> oh yeah, there's a, there's a lot right next to the Valley of Hinnom. It's great. <clears throat> you don't have to take, go far to throw away your garbage. It's a constant burning fire in an attempt to purify the rot. Jesus says, if you aren't all in, this is the result, eternal judgment. And then he talks about salt, pure salt. Salt during this time had many important critical uses. It was a preservative because there's no refrigeration, right? Salt was only good, though, if it was pure. Once you mixed it with anything, salt became corrupted. It wouldn't preserve. It actually, chemically, would become toxic. 
dangerous, useless. <coughs> it became contaminated in any way. It loses its value. It has to be thrown out, and there's no way to purify it. And salt was also seen as a spiritual preservative in some, uh, some offerings. Leviticus 2.13, look what uh, Leviticus says. You shall season your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. The idea behind it was salt represented this spiritual preservative as a reminder of God's faithful promises. There's a lot there, right? That was a lot of history, understanding why these metaphors would be effective. <clears throat> now let's turn to the spiritual. What about God? What does he do? I want to talk about how he's turning up the heat. He's escalating the rhetoric. Time's running out. These lessons are critical. <clears throat> They're not there yet. He's escalating his intensity of these private teachings, using these harsh graphic metaphors as relevant object lessons. And he's calling for radical behavior change. He's showing how serious the issue is. How crucial they stop embracing the kingdom that the Pharisees have been hoping for. Guys, this is, this is a level of seriousness you must pay attention to. You must get rid of these concepts. Stop embracing the scribes and the Pharisees. <coughs> and the first thing he says is this millstone around the neck thing. Children are still on the scene. <clears throat> he goes back to the illustration of the least disease. And he talks about this idea of ensnaring or entrapping. You know what the Greek word is? Scandalizo. We get the English word scandal. <clears throat> That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were a complete scandal to get money. And he says, scandalite, the word, the Greek word to trip up, figuratively to stumble, to entice into sin or apostasy, false doctrine. They were guilty of this. Leaning vulnerable people into sin. And Jesus warns his disciples to love and shepherd the vulnerable. Don't take advantage of them by leading them into religious folly. Children is a metaphor for believers, vulnerable to bad teaching by those who lead them. And the result, if you are one that leads people with false teaching, millstone around your neck in the sea would be better. If you mislead them, you're not part of the kingdom. Boy, Pastor Joe loved that part of the passage this week, didn't he? It's a big responsibility. He's making sure the disciples that they understand how crucial it is that they fully grasp this new message, this complete message that he's been teaching them. You can't lead people astray. Interestingly enough, later on, pure doctrine keeping doctrine, the gospel pure, would be the biggest battle and fight for the disciples in their epistles. Fascinating. But then he talks about this amputation. I want you to see amputation actually equals confession. <clears throat> That's what Jesus is really saying. He adds eye gouging for lust to really drive things home. So the hand, the foot, the eye. It's a reference to the habit that the Pharisees and the scribes had of hiding their sinfulness, appearing self-righteous. They had these religious, phony facades. They were very good at constructing. <clears throat> now, Jesus does say in Mark 7.15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So we know, clearly, losing a limb won't change your sinful nature. Just because you chop your hand off doesn't mean you're no longer in your heart a thief. You are. 
Amputation is simply a metaphor for transparency, for confession. You're unrighteous. You desperately need mercy. An amputation means that you're confessing, I'm a thief. There's no reason to hide it. The Pharisees would never reveal their sinfulness. They would always go to great lengths to conceal it. Jesus is saying, you're not perfect. Stop pretending like you are. And he uses the Valley of Hinnom to symbolize eternal judgment. And he lays out the consequences of being a hypocrite. The consequences of false teaching is death, drowning. The consequences of being a hypocrite is hell. He says, it's better for you to expose your sinful heart and receive mercy and grace and forgiveness and restoration than ignore it and face judgment. If you refuse to acknowledge what's in your heart, eternity will ultimately reveal it when it's too late. And then he talks about fire and salt. Remember, these disciples don't want to embrace the suffering of Jesus, right? That's the part they don't want to hear. Remember, they were scared to ask the questions. We talked about it last week. Now, later, Peter did understand in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He said, this is Peter, one of the chief guys who didn't want to believe in suffering. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See what Jesus is teaching here? You're going to go through fire one way or the other. You can't avoid it. Either your faith will be tested by fire or you'll be judged by fire. Analyze where you're headed and who you're following. He's exhorting them to purify their doctrine Confess who they are in their sinfulness and embrace suffering. Why? That will make them pure salt. The Pharisees, which were the conservatives of the day, if you will, the Republicans, they wanted small government, get rid of Rome. The Sadducees are the liberals. They wanted big Rome. They liked big government. They are all on the opposite side of all of these issues. Jesus is not preaching a conservative message. He's not preaching a liberal message. He's preaching a godly message. And what Jesus is saying is this, it is irrational to be like either one of those groups. It is, in fact, foolish. The consequences of the irrational, illogical choice of the Pharisees and the scribes, those things you want to so hardly grasp onto, you don't want to let go of them, you cannot embrace any of those and be all in with me. So let's look at the personal. What about us? What are we supposed to do? I'm going to talk about being all in or not at all. This was the social media campaign early in the week on my Twitter and Facebook. Personal purity is a very intimidating topic because if we're honest, we know we don't measure up. So the first reaction that many have to this passage, especially when they read it out of context, is daunting. It's a dire warning about personal purity. That's what we think. And what we do often in churches, we'll give passages like this one and others, the obligatory amen, a nod of yes, so true. But really, we'd rather quickly move on to something else, right? Yes, amputation, yes. Yes, millstone, yes. But let's move on to Psalms. And why? 
because we know we don't measure up and it's intimidating. We know how hard it is to let go of this world. Ironically, that's exactly where the disciples are right now. Do you get that? That's what they've been feeling this whole time. As Jesus teaches about this new kingdom, they cannot let go. That's why they were scared to talk about it because they knew it was too much for them. This lesson's about far more than purity. This passage is about something else. It's about motivation. It's about commitment. It's about dedication. It's about being double-minded. James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Remember the hands, cutting off the hands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Fire, salt, purity. This is the same concept that James is talking about. You see how it's all tied together. See, the religious elite at the day, uh, during that day, were the only example of spirituality the disciples had. The only thing they'd ever known. And they're really struggling with letting go of their teaching, the way of life, their cultural attitudes. But Jesus says, no, you have got to abandon it. If you don't, it's like a millstone. You're better off with amputation parts. And as the disciples continued to battle with keeping one foot in the kingdom of the Pharisees, he's trying to pry it out of their hands and get their foot over all on one side. <clears throat> Matthew 6, 24. <clears throat> No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money here is anything we put in front of the kingdom. Immorality, business, treasures, family, whatever. Anything that makes you double-minded. And we too, just like the disciples, constantly battle with letting go of this world. Simultaneously, we are seeking, as Christians, to follow Jesus, and we are, in fact, double-minded. <clears throat> we want to be pure salt, right? None of us would say, you know what, I don't mind being mixed salt. No, I mean, we want to be pure. But there's this constant temptation to mix in the world's seasoning. And it splits our attention. Because the world does offer us fancy promises. Hopes and dreams. Some of the world's promises even appear righteous. <clears throat> but Jesus is making it very clear to them. And to us, if we aren't all in, we're useless to the kingdom. And the metaphors Jesus uses, mixed with these eternal consequences... He makes not being all in appear really foolish and illogical. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Some versions say spiritual worship. That's a bad translation. You're getting a bonus Greek lesson today. You got three words today. The word reasonable is logikos, logic. Reasonable, rational, logical. 
What Paul says is, in Romans chapter 1 through 11, he's laying out all the reasons why grace is good and legalism is bad. He's talking to Roman, in Rome, he's talking to Jewish Christians, get rid of the old law, <clears throat> embrace the new. And he says all these things in Romans 12, 1 comes, he says, because of all this, I urge you, present your body a living sacrifice, pure and acceptable. It's the rational, logical conclusion. I love the word. It indicates that once you understand truth, being all in is only the only rational choice. That's what today's passage is teaching us. With all its harsh metaphors, it's an irrefutable case for us to be all in. Because the cost of otherwise are far greater than we can imagine. It's the only reasonable choice. Anything else is illogical, irrational, foolish, ending in tragic consequences. That's why Jesus said this. And he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Forever should save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We're not just talking about trying to stay alive. Life we're talking about is your lifestyle, your possessions, maybe ungodly relationships, maybe ways you conduct your business that are not moral, anything. And what Jesus says is, it's not some sort of emotional, magical, one-time campfire syndrome decision. This is something you have to do daily. We will constantly struggle. So let's just be transparent about it. That's where the confession comes in. Every day, I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I have the lust of the eyes. Every day, being all in with Jesus is a daily recognition, a daily surrender, accepting the solemn responsibilities and admitting when we fail. This is what he is relentlessly teaching his disciples. Guys, there's no middle ground. Don't be foolish. Be logical here. Be rational. Stop being double-minded. Take up your cross daily. Abandon your earthly kingdom hopes. Strive for the kingdom of heaven. What does that look like for you practically? I'm not going to tell you. That's between you and God in your daily surrender. But I can tell you where it starts. It starts with recognizing your kingdom responsibility. Don't lead people astray into a scandal. It starts with you practicing kingdom transparency. Confession. Stop playing games thinking that you are trying to make other people think you're godly when you're not. You need grace and mercy just as much as them. And being willing to accept whatever fire and suffering comes your way because of Jesus. Because that's when your faith is tested by that fire. I'd rather that happen than my soul be judged by it. Confess this week your double-mindedness. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Ask for God to show us what it means to be all in. Even if it means a few harsh lessons and strongly worded metaphors. Heavenly Dad, 
we are in constant struggle with double-mindedness. The world is screaming for our loyalties and for our attention. We confess to you that each and every day we have to get up and say, I have a responsibility. I need mercy and I accept whatever suffering comes my way because I'm following you. Lord, help us recognize that if we're not all in, we're not in at all. We're just playing games. And the danger, as you very well said and four times in this passage, the danger is judgment. Make us all in. I believe. We believe. But as you taught us a couple weeks ago, please help us with our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, thank you very much. A couple things I want to tell you. For those of you that keep worshiping with us online and worshiping here, I just want you to know this from the bottom of my heart. It really means so much to me that you've stayed committed to our church family during this difficult time as we're figuring out ways to transition. My heart specially goes out to you Grace Life families with kids. We don't have any children's ministry going on here live, and it just, it's a very big burden that we're carrying as shepherds. We're trying to figure out ways to solve that as we go forward in this new reality. And I want you to know how much I appreciate your faithfulness and your giving, your attendance here online, and volunteering with the food pantry and, and Day for Hope and all those things. Bear with us. We're working on a lot of things, and you'll be hearing from us really soon about some exciting plans. We love you guys. Have a great week. Let us know if you have any needs. We got your back.